Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor of the University of Iowa, and I'm co-host of the channel along with Robert Talese. In our bi-monthly podcasts, we interview philosophers about their ideas as expressed in their newly published books. Today's interview is with Helen Stewart, a senior lecturer of philosophy at the University of Leeds, Her new book, A Metaphysics for Freedom, is just out from Oxford University Press. The basic problem of free will is quite simple to pose. Do we ever act freely? One of the traditional no answers comes from the idea that we live in a deterministic universe, such that everything that happens had to happen, given the initial conditions of the universe and the laws governing its unfolding since then. A contemporary variant goes something like this. We're predetermined to do what we do because our minds arise from brain activity, and brain activity is just a special kind of physical activity. Stewart attempts to undermine the fundamentals of this mechanistic view with an alternative that she calls agency incompatibilism. On Stewart's view, the concept of agency is very close to that of animacy, and it includes the concept of being able to settle what happens when and how with one's body. Since settling matters implies that they are not determined, agency is incompatible with determinism. And since there are agents, determinism must be false. That is, according to Stewart, it is not up to physics to tell us whether determinism is true. Moreover, she denies that the causal efficacy of agency should be explicated in terms of events going on inside agents. With this subtly argued book, Stewart assumes a leading role in a new non-mechanistic movement in the metaphysics of mind and mental causation. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Helen. Hi, Carrie. Hi, welcome to New Books and Philosophy. Thanks very much. Thank you. Um, I'm really excited about this book. It's it's a uh, important new contribution, I think, to the um, to the literature on free will. Well, um, thank you. <laughs> um, and just to sort of give an overview of the book, you you argue for what you call agency incompatibilism, um, which you distinguish from agent causation, although you um, you do say it's sort of within the same ballpark. Yes. Um, and you uh, you connect the idea of agency more closely to the idea of animacy. Um, you argue that uh, determinism is false. Uh, on the basis yeah. of this, you know, conceptual, you know, incompatibility with age, with um, agency and the existence of agency. Um, That's right. And you also give very interesting new answers to uh, the, the what's off, what's what you call the the problem, the challenge from chance, the idea that um, uh, that that has been raised against incompatibilist positions that if. Um, if there is indeterminism, it's no better than determinism because it just means that we do things randomly. Yes. Um, so before before we get into the details of, of this of your new your your position, um, maybe you could say a word about um, how you got into philosophy and how you got into uh, the particular topic of this book. Okay. Well, um, I guess I got into philosophy. Um, as many people get into philosophy, um, more or less by accident. Um, I stumbled upon it. Um, I, I registered for a degree um, at the University of Oxford that's called, it's known as PPE, um, which is Philosophy, Politics and Economics. Um, really thinking that I would be interested in the politics and economics and not really knowing, you know, at the age of 18, quite what philosophy was. Um, in the UK school system, it's not a subject that you would do at school. Um, at least it wasn't um, at the time when I was a, um, a teenager. Um, and so um, I sort of got into philosophy almost <laughs> almost by mistake. Um, I, 
I began it, I suddenly realized that this was a subject where people were discussing things that had been kind of occurring to me, had been of interest to me, you know, just thinking by myself. Um, and that was a wonderful revelation um, and, you know, a very exciting time for me, um, sort of beginning my discovery of philosophy, because I really did feel it was it was a subject that it was kind of my subject. I felt like it really suited me well. Um, I think that happens to lots of people, actually. They sort of discover philosophy, they stumble upon it late on, and they think, oh, gosh, here it is that everybody's talking about these issues that I've been thinking about by myself. Um, and then, I mean, so far as the free will problem is concerned, um, I've, I've always been interested in it. I mean, even before I came across it sort of as a philosopher, um, I think I was interested in it. I think it's a really fascinating area of philosophy um, as I say in the um, in the preface to the book one reason it's so fascinating I think is that it it sort of contains so many other um, philosophical issues um, you know you need to get clear about so many tricky philosophical concepts in order to get clear about the free will problem you know, you've got the concept of mind, the concept of self, the concept of causation, explanation, power, potential. You know, all these, all these difficult, rich, interesting concepts kind of intersect at the free will problem. Um, and so I think, I think for many philosophers, it's, it's a, you know, a really, really fruitful, thorny, interesting kind of knot of issues. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm no exception. I, I, I find it endlessly fascinating. You know, st still do. I don't feel at all as though I've kind of said everything I want to say about the free will problem or sorted it out or anything. You know, I think it's a, it's a lifetime's work easily. Well, it's certainly a very timely one um, because of uh, advances in neuroscience and... Uh... Sure. Yeah, everybody's, a lot of people are, are contributing or trying to contribute to this, to this literature from a lot of different angles. That's right, that's right. Um, and, and that's great, you know, because it is an interdisciplinary question. Um, and, you know, uh, philosophers have by no means got the monopoly on interesting things to say about the free will problem. So let me, um, let me start with uh, asking you just the basic question about uh, your view, which you call agency incompatibilism, uh, yes. which, which you specify as a kind of libertarian freedom. Um, maybe uh, in explaining the basics of that view, you might say how it fits into the, you know, kind of the standard problem of determinism versus free will. Okay, so... Um Agency and compatibilism, I characterize as the view that agency itself is incompatible with determinism. Um, more traditional views, more traditional versions of libertarianism have it that um, something that's called free agency, specifically, or uh, free agency and moral responsibility or something like that, um, is incompatible with determinism. And the subtext there, of course, is uh, human agency is specifically incompatible with determinism. Um, the kind of implicit, if not explicit, idea being, you know, the rest of the animal kingdom we can sort of forget about uh, whatever it is they go in for in the way of um, planning, deciding, activity, and so on. Uh, that's all safely um, consistent with determinism. We only have to worry when it comes to our own agency, which has certain special features, um, which make it very difficult to uh, make consistent with determinism. Now, now that traditional way of thinking about things is really what I want to what I want to oppose. Um, and the view I want to argue for is no, it's not just free agency, human agency, rational agency, whatever you want to call it, that's um, incompatible with determinism. It's agency itself. Um, that's compatible. It's incompatible with determinism. That's to say, it's a set of powers um, that's much more widely instantiated than merely in the human world. Um, that's instantiated right throughout the animal kingdom, 
um, that's inconsistent with determinism. And that's sort of that's the starting point, really, for my view, trying to argue that there's something that we share with many animals. Not all, you know, I think there are there are animals too simple to be regarded as agents. But many, many animals are complicated enough um, to deserve to be called agents. Uh, and I think we share with those animals um, sets of powers which are um, impossible to square with deterministic visions of the universe. And uh, that's really the... Um, the, well, I was going to say the premise of the book. <laughs> In a way, it's it's uh, it's the conclusion of the book. It, it's the view for which I for which I'm trying to argue and um, which I'm trying to sort of meet objections to. Um, right. So, um, by by connecting this idea of agency with with animacy, you the. Uh, in a sense, you um, you pull back the problem from the sorts of issues of moral responsibility that are usually raised directly from the problem of free will. Yes, um, um, and you you kind of step back from that to a more a, a more basic type of agency, which doesn't necessarily have anything to do with moral responsibility. Is that correct? That's right. That's right. That's the idea. Um, so maybe you could say a bit about what you say about uh, what it is to be an agent. And that's sure. sort of the beginning yeah. of the book. Yeah. 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 Um, I mean, you're, you're quite right. That's the sort of nub of the issue, really. Um, and what I try to argue is that we have come to sort of accept as philosophical orthodoxy a view about what it takes for an action to have occurred that's actually um, basically designed to be compatibilist. <laughs> um, that, that's my view. Um, it's, a, it's a view of actions as characterized by their typical causal antecedents. You know, it, it, it's the sort of thing people often say, well, an action is an event that is... Um, brought about by our beliefs and desires in combination. Um, maybe they give rise to intentions or decisions or something in between, and then you get a bodily movement. And as long as you've got a causal chain that has that kind of shape to it, then an action's occurred. Okay, so it's, it's all about causal networks, causal chains of interlinked events and states. Um, what I try to argue in the book is, you know, that's that's not um, the sort of natural view which absolutely everyone has to agree before we even start thinking about agency. That's actually um, a view of agency that's only come to seem um, like natural way of thinking about action um, as a result of the sort of Humean revolution of, in ways of thinking about causation in, in a rather sort of mechanistic way. Prior to Hume, the way everyone thought about action was in terms of, you know, agents with powers, that's to say substances, um, with causal powers. Uh, and I suppose in a sense you can see um, one of the things that the book is doing is an attempt to say, look, um, maybe we ought to get back to a more Aristotelian way of thinking about the nature of action. Um, maybe we ought to get back to thinking about actions as essentially inputs into uh, causal reality, if you like, that are up to agents. That's that's the sort of route that I take um, toward getting a fix on the concept of action. Um, I go via what in a way is a very everyday notion, um, the notion of something being up to someone. Um, so I try to say, look, let's start from there. Let's start from the idea that an action is an input into the course of nature that's up to um, someone, something, uh, and see whether we can do any work with, with that very everyday notion of, of up to usness. Uh, and I try to argue that some work can be done with that very basic everyday notion. Um, I use what I think is a related concept, the concept of settling something. So I say that um, when someone acts, um, they settle the way a certain portion of reality is to be in some particular respect or respects. Um, and that concept of settling is really what I then use to derive 
the incompatibilist aspect of my view by a what's really a very simple move and the basic thought being look if we're if we're actually to settle things as agents when we act um then it's got to be the case that those things haven't already been settled um by you know events states and affairs um that have already happened um and my argument is look uh, if determinism is true if universal determinism is true um those things have already been settled by um ways the universe was you know long before i was born even um so if, if it's really to be in our power to settle things at the time of action um determinism can't be true um, I, I suppose you know the the um, you might say the orthodox response or the one that that many people would give at this point would be something like, well, it, it's quite true that if we you know if it is open to us to to settle things, um, then determinism can't be true. Um, but the, the sort of the loaded assumption would be that it is actually open to us that it you know that determinism is in fact false. Um, and I know you argue, you know, that um, there are settlings, there are agents, and therefore determinism is true. Um, but you, can you can you can you get into that argument a little bit about about um, your uh, your claim that we can in in that conditional right? If if there are agents, you know, determinism is false, you know, and um, there are things that are settled. Um, uh, how, how do you get to the claim that the, um, the antecedent is actually true? Yes, well, of course, as, as in many philosophical arguments, the, the crucial question is, you know, which thing is the, more, is the more natural, the more obvious, the more likely thing to be true? Right. Um, you know, is it the uh, antecedent or is it the negation of the consequent, you know, which, as, as with, you know, for example, Moore's famous argument um, in which he tries to argue that it's more obvious that, you know, um, there are some hands in the universe. Right. That's, that's more obvious than that, you know, um, the sceptical conclusion should be true. I suppose I kind of conceive of my argument in a similar sort of way. Um, what I try to do is to really try and press home how terribly unnatural a deterministic view of um, the agency of animals is, how little it shines, how difficult it is to make consonant with many of the things we ordinarily think about as agency. Um, and by contrast, um, I, I try to undermine, I suppose, uh, this is the other, the other half of the task I conceive myself as, ha as having to do. I have to, at the same time, undermine the idea that um, it really is a kind of scientifically open question, an empirical question to which the answer hasn't yet been decided, and we've got to kind of leave, leave to the physicists to settle, you know, whether determinism or indeterminism is true. So in a way, there's, there's two separate tasks. There's trying to argue for the, um, the naturalness, the everydayness, the ubiquitousness of indeterministic ways of thinking about animals. And then there's trying to argue for the view that actually it isn't merely um, an empirical question that we have to leave to the physicists whether or not determinism is true. It's a metaphysical question on which we as philosophers are able to bring to bear, you know, we're able to bring to bear philosophical arguments and ought to bring to bear philosophical arguments. And we shouldn't do what, you know, many, many philosophers in the literature are inclined to do and say, oh, well, you know, this is up to the guys in white coats in Stanford, you know, to kind of, <laughs> to say, for us and then we philosophers will just sort of adapt well, um, that's, that's sort of a that's a very interesting reversal so let me just clarify and, and, and press you on it um, so it's the idea that the very claim that physics right basic science is responsible for determining the truth of determinism this very claim itself is or reflects a metaphysical position and what you're arguing for is is that metaphysical position 
in which that claim appears to be true is itself um, uh, either undermined or false or, or simply not, uh, not as strong as the opposing view that physics is not responsible. Is, is that correct? That's right. That's right. Um, I have a whole chapter, although it's the shortest chapter in the book. I do devote a whole chapter to this issue about um, determinism in physics because it's so very much the orthodoxy, I think, in the free will literature to adopt this very hands-off view to say, you know, it really is up to these physicist guys, the cosmologists or whoever they are, to, to tell us whether determinism or indeterminism is true. Now, I don't deny that it is sort of epistemically possible. It's conceivable that one day some physicists might come along and say, look, guys, you know, we've done these equations and these measurements and come up with this data or whatever, which just reveal um, that the physical universe is actuated by, you know, deterministic laws and um, that's that. You know, I, I accept that that is a sort of epistemic possibility. Um, but what I don't accept is the much, much stronger view um, that in advance of um, having, you know, any such um, verdict derived from, um, from the physicists that we ought to accept that um, we as philosophers have nothing worth saying um, on the question whether determinism or indeterminism is, is likely to be true. Because determinism, as I point out in the book, uh, as it's standardly formulated, is a doctrine about not just the physical facts, but about all the facts, right? The biological facts, the chemical facts, the sociological facts, the economic facts, the personal facts, the ordinary facts, all the facts, okay, are supposed to be determined um, by antecedent conditions if determinism is the case. And so you need an argument if you are going to argue that physicists have any particular um, right to tell us whether or not determinism is true, because it isn't, it plainly is not, as typically stated, a doctrine of physics on the face of it. Okay, so you need an argument um, of some sort to show that, um, to, to, to kind of reveal the connections, if you like, between the physical facts uh, and all those other facts of which the doctrine of determinism speaks. What sort of argument is that going to be? What, where is it going to come from? Well, it's going to be a metaphysical argument, isn't it? It is not going to be something that comes from physics itself, or so I would maintain. Um, so determinism involves, as it were, um, a sort of big metaphysical component. Um, and therefore, it seems to me, it's perfectly right and proper for philosophers to think they've got something to say about it. Um, and if, for example, one thinks, as I do, um, that some of the phenomena in the universe, um, particularly the agency of animals, for example, uh, is best understood indeterministically, well, that's a reason for thinking that indeterminism is more likely to be true than determinism, um, which is perfectly legitimate to put forward, it seems to me, as an argument against determinism. Well, it's it's certainly swimming against a very strong stream in the other direction. Um, True. <laughs> yes. Um, and we I'm can, a good swimmer. Sorry. I'm a good swimmer. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, so let let's um, let's get into the again the view of agency and and settling um, and exactly what exactly makes it um, incompatible with determinism. Okay, so um, the idea there um, is simply that typical conceptions of determinism suggest that, um, you know, for example, the things that I am saying now to you, the very words I'm speaking, um, those are settled by prior conditions, um, which in turn are settled by prior conditions, which in turn are settled by conditions prior to those, and so on and so on and so on, right back into the distant past. So that in fact, um, the words that I'm saying to you now, the very particular choices of um, words that I'm, I'm making, um, 
that was in fact settled um, at times, you know, long before I was even born. Now, I think to most people, that's very hard to square with the idea that um, the particular choice of words that um, is coming out of my mouth right now, that that's something that's up to me, up to me at the time of action, up to me at the time of speaking. How could it be up to me at the time of action, you might think, if it was already settled way back when? Um, it's that intuition that I'm trying to um, utilize. I think it's a very similar intuition to the intuition that Van Inwalden tries to utilize in his famous consequence argument. Um, he tries to argue in a very similar way, I think, to the way that I try to argue. Um, that things which were settled in the distant, in the distant past cannot be up to us. Um, and I rely on a, what is a modified version, I suppose, of the consequence argument um, to, to make a very similar um, plea for incompatibilism. Um, so uh, maybe we can talk about your uh, response then to the, um, to the challenge, what you call the challenge from chance, right? Um, you, I mean, you call your view agency incompatibilism, um, but you quite specifically say this is not just, you know, agent causation all over. Um, but um, the uh, the challenge of chance, of course, is the idea that just that, well, if indeterminists, if some sort of libertarian freedom is true, um, we're also not in control of what we do, and, and randomness doesn't get us the kind of freedom we want, um, you know, it's, it's, no, it's no better, really, than determinism. Um, yeah. And you make what you call an important concession um, on that view. Um, so maybe you could give us uh, a little bit of explanation of um, how you respond to that, you know, very common objection um, to uh, the uh, libertarian freedom view that you are um, uh, defending. Okay, so, um, yeah, this, this bit of the book is actually quite complicated and it takes a bit of setting out. Um, what, I, what I think is that because people are often beginning to think about this debate, um, because they are interested in moral responsibility, the way, the way the issue gets set up in the first place makes the sort of position that I'm um, that I endorse, almost invisible. You can't even see that it's a possibility. Um, let me say a little bit about what I mean by that. So, um, the kind of predicament that's often envisaged as a kind of starting point for thinking in the literature is a position in which you've got an agent um, and they've got a sort of moral choice. You know, they could do A and they could do B. And they decide to do A, but we like to think that perhaps they could have done B. And indeed, unless they could have done B, um, there's some sense in which it would have been unfair to punish them or to hold them responsible for having done A. Um, so that's the, that's the kind of setup. Now, compatibilists often say, look, um, if you're in a position in which you're an agent who's got really great reasons for doing A and really no good reasons at all for doing B, um, and you do A because you can see it's the best thing to do, that sort of thing, um, what, what value is it? What, what, why would it be important to be able to have done B, you know, um, given that all your desires, all your motivations, all your reasons, all these things that you've had in advance of action, let's say, all these things point to doing A. Why do we care about, you know, having been able to do, to do B? Now, I've, I've got a lot of sympathy with that compatibilist line of thought. I think that's right. I think we don't want, we, we, we shouldn't need to have um, a kind of freedom that consists in the capacity to do things at the time of action, um, that we, at the time of action, had no reason to want to do, had no desire to do, had no motivation to do. Um, the idea that, you know, at the time of action, 
there you are, replete with all your reasons, desires, motivations, all those things. And yet you could have done something at that very time um, completely inconsistent with any of those desires. You know, I, I agree with compatibilists who say, who wants that? That's mad. That's, that's the capacity to do crazy things that have nothing to do with you, have nothing to do with what you want, what you think best, or any of that. Okay. So in that particular respect, and this is something I do want to stress because I know that because my position is called agency and compatibilism, I, it will be treated as a libertarian book. It will be treated as, you know, a, an incompatibilist view, which of course indeed in strict terms it is an incompatibilist view. But one of my motivations for having argued the way that I do is that I think some of what compatibilists say in the service of their views is actually right and compelling. And one of the things that I think is appealing about my own view is that it makes it possible to make these concessions to the compatibilist. Okay, so I say, all right, um, let's not insist on a kind of um, possibility being available to the agent at the time of action, which consists in their doing things they just sort of have no desires to do, which don't match up with their motivations. That that would be pointless. Mm -hmm. um, my view is rather that um, what we ought to do rather is think about actions as what I call um, the exercises of two-way powers. Um, the capacity to do something or not to do it. So rather than a or B, right? It's as it were A or not A um, is the is the crucial is the crucial distinction. If you're able um, to act, you're able to do the thing or not do it. Now, even that is needs immediate qualification. Even that is to is to say something that's too strong. Because I also agree with many. Um, compatibilist writers that it is possible for there to be situations in which there's an agent who acts and who couldn't have done other than act in that way. So just to um, give an example to put a bit of flesh on the bones there, um, Frankfurt has talked about what he calls volitional necessity. Um, so these are circumstances in which because of the power of your motivations, you're actually you're just not able to do anything different from the thing that you do do at a particular time. So, for example, you know, suppose I'm outside a house in which I know you know my children are sleeping. It's burning down. There's no fire crews within miles. I know that the only prospect um, of saving them is for me to run in and get them out. Now, it might be that because of the power of that motivation. I'm actually just incapable of resisting, you know, the temptation to run in and try to get them. I sort of have to do it. I am under volitional necessity, as Frankfurt calls it. I don't want to insist that there can't be circumstances like that, that there can't be cases in which um, an agent bees, let's say, um, and couldn't have done other than B. Mm -hmm. But what I insist is that nevertheless... As you act in a circumstance like, like that, although where the act type is necessitated, although you can't do anything other than run into the house to rescue your children, you still maintain your agential control over what's going on. You know, you can decide, are you going in through the front or the back? Are you going in through the door or the window? Are you going to call to your children as you go in? Are you going to, um, you know, attempt to take them out together or one at a time? Or, you know, all these things are up to you as you act. And the fact that all those things are up to you as you act is part of the settling that I regard as constitutive of agency. Um, whether the particular the particular course of events that is enacted as a result of your of, of the motivation and necessity to go in and rescue them, it's up to you. Okay, it's you that it's you that settles precisely what chain of events will ensue. Um, even though the overall shape of the chain of events is dictated. Um, and that is what I regard as essential to the operation of agency. You know, um, the control over your body and thence 
um, control over external circumstances um, that an agent typically has um, when he or she when he or she acts. So that's kind of that's the crux of things. So I, on the one hand, concede that there can be actions such that one couldn't have acted other than in that general way. But what I deny, and a short way of putting my thesis, is that. There can't be actions that are what I call historically inevitable. There can't be individual actions that are historically inevitable. That's to say such that the particular acts, okay, in all their detail, in all their intricate particularity, is fixed by antecedent circumstances. That, that's, that's the thesis. There cannot be such things um, as actions which are historically inevitable. That just makes them non-actions, in my view. Okay. If uh, in your response to, to Frankfurt, we're, we're responsible for, you know, in the case that you give, you know, you're, you, you are sort of necessitated in a, some sense to, to run into the house. Um, and what's up to you is, you know, exactly the speed at which you run or the direction or whether you shout, or whether you don't. Um, and all of these things seem to be rather minor in, in, in the sense of uh, much of the debate about free will will not be about, you know, do you, do you move your foot, you know, forward six inches or seven inches? But, you know, do you run to, you know, into the house at all? Um, and, sure. and so is, is, the, is the type of agency of, of settling that is that is critical to your notion of agency um is is that really sufficient to give us the sense of free will that that we want okay so that's a really good question um to which the first thing to say is that of course it is not part of my view that we only ever settle (laughs) these trivial minor things um of course in many many cases by means of settling you know how my body will precisely move i settle momentous things (laughs) and do so quite deliberately quite you know in full realization of what it is i'm doing you know that very the very very full-blooded kind of um settling of phenomena um, that have more traditionally been thought of as absolutely crucial to free will are evidenced and um, of course I don't I don't mean to suggest that we, we can't do that um, the point is merely that um, there can be um, activity which counts or ought to count on my view as an exercise of agency which isn't that, which isn't as momentous and full-blooded as that, um, which um, does simply involve um, settling within a kind of, uh, within constraints that are provided, if you like, by nature in one way or another, um, which of uh, a constrained range of alternatives might um, might come to be. I mean, I, I think this is very important, obviously, um, someone who wants to argue that animals can be agents because of course um the the operation of instinct is something that you know can't be gainsaid when you're looking at the activities of animals i mean it can't be gainsaid incidentally in our own case either um i mean it's uh, it's obviously true in our case as well that we are constrained um by you know various of our human instincts um, and cannot operate without them but um I think it's it's much more obvious. It's much clearer in the case of many other animals that you know the constraints are more serious. Um, it's much more natural to think that you know that their their freedoms, as it were, operate on a much lowlier level than ours, and that um, their alternatives are um, similarly lowlier sorts of alternatives. Um, so. The point isn't just to just to repeat. The point isn't that all we ever do is settle these you know minor things. Uh, the point is just that there can be types of agency which involve settling you know fairly, fairly minor things, and that the necessary conditions of agency um, are um, perhaps less um, less demanding than uh, than they've sometimes been thought to be. So, um, so. 
when you talk about agency and compatibilism, uh, what you mean essentially is this this sort of lower sense um, of agency of uh, settling small things rather than large things. Is is that correct? Oh, sort of not quite, no. Because, well, because um, well, the, the follow-up question was, well, then how does that sense of agency connect to the, the fuller sense of agency that the free will discussion yeah. is usually about? Yeah. I mean, so, that's, that's so the let, gap that I'm trying yeah. to get at. Yeah. So the view is that... Um, Agency in what you call the small sense, you know, the kind of the, the settling the small things sense of agency. That's a necessary condition of agency in the large sense, right? Unless we can settle these minor things, we sure as hell can't settle any of the big things, right? Unless I can make it the case, you know, that my body will move in such and such a direction at such and such a speed, you know. I'm not going to be able to uh, create any revolutions or, you know, write any manifestos or do any of the sorts of things um, that human beings might typically um, want to do in bringing about, you know, grandiose designs of various kinds. Um, So being able to settle the small things um, is a necessary condition of being able to settle the big ones. So if it is possible to show that being able to settle the small things um, is inconsistent with determinism. It's going to be true a fortiori that being able to settle the big ones is inconsistent with determinism. So that's really the shape of the argument. Because being able to settle the little things um, is inconsistent with determinism, according to me, clearly being able to settle the big ones is too. <laughs> um, that's, that's how the argument's meant to go. Okay, so the, so that sort of brings us up, you know, right against the question of um, of agent causation, um, and right. and and the intelligibility of the idea that there is some sort of you know agent causation, and and so I guess there are two two questions here. Um, how do you address the you know the the very common objection to the idea that agent causation? Um, is is not intelligible, um, and also because because now we're talking about agency in the sense of the small things. Um, standardly, what one would think of is well, these small things are you know are events, small events, you know, like moving one's finger, uh, or or not even quite that, just a movement, um, and that. The relation there's a relationship between the agent, you know, the whole organism doing something, and various little events in the organism, uh, you know, sort of underwriting yeah. what the agent does. And it's of course that's the that's the picture that you are arguing against. Yeah. Um, so there's the two questions. One is the intelligibility of the you know of agent causation or. or however you want to put it in your alternative, and then the relationship between this type of causation or this conception of it and the more orthodox view of, well, it's all these little events going on within the agent that give rise to even the small agenty movements that you are talking about. Okay. Okay. Um... So overall, my basic strategy with respect to the question of whether agents can cause things is to focus on the concept of causation more generally and try to argue that the conception of causation that people usually have in mind when they're saying, you know, agent causation is unintelligible and coherent, we can't understand how it can be, you know, that kind of thing. Um, But it's actually the basic conception of causation which is mistaken and tendentious. So one one of the major moves I make in the in the last chapter of the book, which is the biggest chapter of the book, I think, um, and it's the one in which you know, an enormous amount of the philosophical work gets done. One of the things I try and do in that chapter is to argue that the idea that sort of normal causation is event causation right. 
is is a mistake. You know that substance causation, of which of course agent causation is a type, um, a subtype, um, is ubiquitous. You know there are things causing things <laughs> all over the place. There are substances causing things all over the place in the inanimate world as, as much as the um, as much as the animate one. Um, and so I try to make a case for the view that you know the, the concept of substance causation is ordinary. It's, you know, it's not some weird special thing that we need to refer to um, when and only when we're thinking about agency. It's actually uh, a notion that is perfectly everyday and ubiquitous, um, that things are, substances are causing things all the time. Um, so that's kind of the first move that I make. I try to undermine the idea that there's anything funny or suspect about, um, about substance causation more generally. Um, with that out of the way, though, what that, that I regard as a kind of spurious problem. But I do think there is a really big and serious problem um, for the agent causationist, which really does demand some proper philosophical and maybe even scientific work as well. I, I, I do think there's a real, a real issue here um, and one that um, I've only really, I think, made the beginnings of an attempt to um, get to grips with in the book. Um, and that's the issue of how it could be um, that um, a large composite thing could bring about effects in its parts, yeah. except by way of, you know, certain of its parts bringing about events in other of its parts, if you like. And the, the thought that when we say that a substance has brought something about... Um, that really always kind of boils down to certain events in parts of that composite substance bringing those things about. It's, it's really, really natural need for us to make, I think. You know, if you think about, I mean, we do talk all the time about complex substances doing things. You know, you talk about washing machines spinning clothes and, you know, um, computers doing things and this sort of thing. But I, I take it that most of us think that in cases like that, you know, the washing machine isn't really doing anything um, that its parts aren't enabling it to do, if you, if, you, if you see what I mean. That what it does is completely exhausted by what certain of its parts do, okay, in accordance with whatever, you know, program um, it's, it's operating under. Um, whereas I think in the case, what I'm trying to argue is that in the case of an animal, in the case of us, that's not, um, that is a, re- a very powerful libertarian intuition is that's not how it is. It isn't simply that, you know, events go on in the little bits of me, to put it to use a, a term that you use, um, you know, the little parts of me, the neurons, the cells, whatever. Events go on in those parts. They bring about, you know, um, macro-sized bodily movements like my arm going up and so on uh, and that's the whole of the story that it feels as though that loses something really important which is my role you know my role when bringing about my arm movement um, and so what I'm wrestling with in that in that last chapter is can we actually make any sense at all of that idea and I I kind of concede that from uh, a certain viewpoint um, the the idea that there could be um, causation of the sort that I'm suggesting there might be seems kind of bonkers. <laughs> the idea that there could be um, causation of a top of the top down sort that right. I'm trying to argue for uh, is very very hard to make sense of um, in the context of the sort of par- mechanistic paradigms that we um, that we have grown used to. Um, nevertheless. I think there is there is hope, um, and what I what I try to um, suggest in that last chapter is that we need to think much harder than we than we have really um, about top down causation, about what it could amount to, what it might mean. Um, I mean, I think philosophers have, of course, um, thought about top down causation um, a bit, but my suspicion is that they would be helped. We would be helped, I should say. Um, to think about what might be involved more more clearly and more fruitfully by kind of teaming up with areas of science 
um, where it appears that these notions are also needed, you know, like systems biology and dynamic systems theory and these sorts of areas of science where, you know, you've got on the one hand macroscopic phenomena, on the other hand microscopic phenomena, they're clearly related to one another. Um, but what exactly are the relations? Um, and, you know, the, the question of free will is, in a sense, just one more version of that question, you know, how the macroscopic relates to the microscopic. And it may be a question to which a quite general answer <laughs> um, will, you know, go some way towards um, towards giving us what we need in the, in the case of the free will debate in particular. So how, how would you then characterize um, the relationship between... Um, the whole and the parts. Um, you know, well, if, yeah. Um, so what I try to, um, I mean, the relationship between the whole and the parts is just that. It's right. the relationship between the whole right, and the parts. You know, right, um, right. neurons are parts of me, that's to yes. say, of an animal. One thing I ought to say, uh, I think, in, in sort of clarification, um, one problem that agent causationism has faced over the years is that it's been connected with dualism it's been connected with people sorry by people with um cartesian dualism so you know the agent well that's a sort of mysterious ineffable immaterial thing uh and then there are events in the physical world um and so all the issues and problems that surround cartesian dualism um are thought to impact on the agent causationist. So let me stress, when I say agent, what I mean by an agent is an animal. I mean an animal, a resolutely physical entity made of physical stuff, made of uh, particularly biological stuff, mm-hmm. um, about which I don't think there's, you know, there's, there's much question of its existence. You know, animals do exist, so I take that for granted. Um, so when I say agent, I'm, I'm talking about animal agents. And when I say agents do things, I mean animals do things. Um, so I should say that just for clarity's sake. Um, what I the the sort of picture of reality that I try to make use of in an attempt to make sense of what's going on when agents act is a sort of layered conception, if you like. Um, which is very familiar, I think, to philosophers of biology. So, you know, you, you've got at the bottom of an organism, you, you know, you've got, the, you've got the cells, then you've got the tissues, they're organised into organs. Organs are organised into systems, bodily systems. Um, and then what I conceive of as the animal, the agent itself, is, as it were, the top of the hierarchy, um, for um, an individual functioning uh, animal organism. Um, so the animals at the top of this system of um, layered um, entities, each layer of which is sort of dependent on the ones above it in, in various ways. The way I try and make sense of that um, is by way of the notion of um, coincidence. So let, let me let me just explain a little bit what I mean by that. Um, one of the things that I think makes it very, very difficult to understand top-down causation is the thought that um, basically uh, when something happens, uh, it happens because um, of a causally sufficient condition that obtained before it happened, um, or else, if, if not that, then because of you know chance or something, you know, I, either either there was a causally sufficient condition or there was you know something random um, in the in the nexus. Right. Um, neither of those um, pictures obviously is very um, very amenable to. Um, to free will, as you, as you yourself said earlier on in the interview. What I try, I suppose, to do is, is challenge that idea that when an event happens, you know, one or other of these two things must be the case by suggesting that sometimes one needs to explain not just why something happened, but how it was 
that uh, a large array of different things were enabled to occur together at the same time. Now, obviously, in a com complex system like an animal, this is particularly important. And if you think about my carrying out some um, activity like, you know, typing, for example, an enormous amount of coordination is required um, in order for an activity like typing to go on um, in the right kind of way. You know, I've got to, for example, stay upright and balanced in my chair without falling off. So, you know, all those parts of my brain and body have got to be involved. My fingers have got to arrive over the right keys, um, which is a motor um, a motor activity, but my, you know, my language centers have got to be involved because I've got to be um, producing the right words. Um, visual capacities have got to be involved as well, perhaps, because it may be that I'm typing from a screen, so I've got to be looking at something. You know, there's lots and lots of bodily subsystems have to be coordinated in order um, to get an activity like typing to come out right. Now, how can it be? How can it be? In general, what, what sort of form of explanation will enable us to make sense of the orchestration of this very large number of different bodily subsystems to a common end? My, my sort of general programmatic suggestion is that we are going to have to, as it were, look to the higher level. Okay. We are going to have to look to the animal level in particular when it comes to activity to understand the orchestration of the various bodily subsystems um, that have to be um, brought together in um, a harmonious way in order to ensure that an activity um, is conducted correctly. Um, in general, if you stick to the lower level when trying to understand um, why something came about, um, you'll it will just appear that everything is a giant coincidence. You know, we've got all these small little neural events all occurring together. Okay, well, great, they all occurred together, but, but how come? You know, how come they all occurred together? If all you can do at that stage is go back to the previous low-level stage and say, well, they all happen together because this other huge... Um, array of tiny um, neural events all happen together well sort of yes but you haven't explained <laughs> you haven't really you haven't resolved the coincidence for me you've given a causally sufficient condition for the coincidence to arise okay but that is not enough that is not enough for the explanatory purpose we have which is trying to understand how this enormous coincidence has been enabled to happen. And that is uh, where it seems to me there is a role for top-down causation. The coincidence that's required um, for the orchestration of complex phenomena, it seems to me, needs um, appeal to the higher level before it can be understood. And that gives you, I think, the wiggle room for... Uh, kind of metaphysical space for the notion of top-down causation to do some work. That's the sort of general idea that I try to um, get across in, in Chapter 8. I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a hard argument to make, and I think it, it probably needs more argument than I was able really to give it at the sort of tail end of the book, but um, I, I really think it's a very, very important and interesting area of philosophy. Uh, yeah, because the I, I suppose uh, you know, someone more mechanistically or, or reductionistly inclined would just say, well, you know, all that is a matter of, of explanation, but not necessarily a matter of, of causation. Yeah, I know that's what people tend to say, but that <laughs> always has seemed to me kind of preposterous. I mean, it's we need we need. Not just some, you know, explanation in a sense of sort of, you know, something to satisfy a kind of human intellectual inquirer and, you know, um, shut them up for a bit. We need it for the causal metaphysics, surely. You know, the coincidence has happened. Incredible. Wow. How? How has that coincidence happened? It seems to me 
it's just uh, it's missing the point really to say oh well that's all explanation it's not really causation it is it's causation it's a causal question you know how how did this amazing state of affairs you know that here is a human being typing some words that actually seem to make sense how has that happened what are the causal preconditions for it to happen um what i would say is that you know in order to understand that causally not just to explain it in a sort of intellectually satisfying way but the causal oomph <laughs> has got to has got to make reference to um allow us to um give the conditions for the coming about of a giant coincidence that's a, that's a matter of providing you know a causal story yeah i i i think and this sort of goes back to your earlier remarks about um uh about the metaphysical uh the the metaphysical question that lies behind the acceptance of physicalism or of, of physics as you know deciding the truth or falsity of determinism there's a sort of a bedrock uh that we reach at this point uh i don't mean the two of us but in general of uh you know whether there really is you know causation at this at these other levels Yes, I mean, it, yeah. And and on the one side, it's it's like you know, one side, you know, there's just uh, is is there a point at which this just becomes you know, one side saying you know there is, and another side saying there isn't. I mean, is there is there some further sort of meta no. metaphysical you know view that might uh, that might decide between these two? Kind of yes and no. I mean. I think it's probably fair to say neither side is in possession of any knockdown arguments at this point. Uh, we're at a place in philosophy where, you know, there just aren't any knockdown arguments. Um, we have reached, you know, we have reached kind of very, very basic clash of presuppositions and, you know, there's a sense in which there's nowhere to go. But on the other hand... Um, I mean, if you think about the way in which philosophical orthodoxies change, you know, and they, and I God, they do change over the centuries. Yeah. Um, it, and think about how that's happened. Well, what what's happened? What happens is that certain sorts of views, in the light of certain sorts of sometimes they're empirical findings, sometimes they're kind of changes in worldview that are brought about by all sorts of things, actually sometimes, you know, by things like political changes. Um, those sorts of slow changes in humanity's views about what makes sense um, do eventually bring about widespread alterations in what people are inclined to find plausible, natural, uh, acceptable. Right. And what I suppose, I mean, my, it's very ambitious hope for a book, I know, but, you know, what's the point of writing a book if you don't have ambitious hopes for it? Yeah. I mean, I, I would like to think that, you know, my book might be one amongst, um, you know, a range of texts, papers and so on um, that might be part of this sort of slow change Um in philosophical thinking and indeed more ordinary thinking about um, what's natural, what's plausible, what's acceptable um, when it comes to thinking about um, the part played by human beings in, uh, in you know, bringing about various sorts of changes in the world. I mean, I think probably the last, what, certainly three centuries, maybe even a bit longer, um, have been dominated by a very mechanistic paradigm and we've been encouraged to think of as implausible, unscientific, anti-naturalistic ways of thinking about our role which have challenged, you know, mechanistic orthodoxy. But I think now, I mean, it's coming to be recognised more and more within science, you know, not just, um, not just within you know, philosophy or um, the arts more generally, it's coming to be recognised within science that that mechanistic paradigm actually 
actually doesn't fit um, kind of across the board. Um, as I, I, I mentioned, you know, um, things like dynamic systems theory, mm. obviously there's a philosopher's favourite examples, you know, quantum mechanics. Um, doesn't look as though it fits, you know, the sort of deterministic, mechanistic paradigm that um, Newton um, imposed on us. Um, so there are, there are all sorts of areas, I think, scientific areas, where um, we've had to sort of face the fact that um, a Newtonian way of thinking about the world isn't right, either in detail or actually in in um, in principle, you know, in, in its in its basic in its basic the basic framework for thinking about reality that it imposes. Um, and um, so I'm sort of hopeful that there might be um, changes um, on the scientific side as well as on the philosophical side, um, which might make some of the views that I've tried to argue for seem more palatable. Well, on, on that hopeful note, um, <laughs> I think we're, we're, uh, we're running out of time. Um, so let me just uh, ask... Um, to to end the interview, what uh, what are you working on now? Do you have another book project, or are you going to uh, work on some smaller papers for a while? I don't have another book project just at the moment. I feel too exhausted yeah. <laughs> in the last one. Um, but I, I do have I do have a kind of project. Um, what I'm working on at the moment is thinking about the category of process. Um, one of the themes in that last chapter, which was very underdeveloped, but which I think is very important, was the idea that we haven't really properly taken seriously um, the processual nature of action. You know, actions aren't very well thought of, I don't think, as events. They have a processual character. They go on through time, um, kind of evolving as they go. They're not just little over and done chunks of reality. Um, and so I've been trying to think more generally about the category of process and trying to, um, I suppose, develop a conception of processes according to which they really are distinctive entities, quite different from events. Um, and then the, the second the second part of the project, I guess, would be to argue that actions um, are processes rather than events in that sense. Okay, well... Um... Thank you very much. That was that was a very illuminating interview. Um, Thank you. You've been listening to an interview with Helen Stewart, Senior Lecturer of Philosophy at the University of Leeds. We've been talking about her new book, A Met- Metaphysics for Freedom, just out from Oxford University Press. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books in Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, and thank you for listening.